Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word, we ask you to just uh, apply it to our hearts, Lord, to uh, make it real to us, Lord, make it alive to our spirits by your spirit, Lord, and speak to our hearts today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the astonishing thing about Palm Sunday is knowing what comes next, Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. I mean, why bother with this triumphal entry if Jesus is not going to take control of the city just then? I mean, the answer is simply to fulfill Scripture. That's why it all happened. We can look at the Old Testament Scriptures, Scriptures such as Daniel 9, 24 to 25, which prophesies this. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people, that is, the people of Israel, Daniel's people, and your holy city, that is Jerusalem, to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. No one understand from this, from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. Well, who was that anointed one, that ruler who was coming? Well, that was Jesus, the Messiah. Those sixty-nine sevens, the seven plus the sixty-two sevens, if they are counted as years and not counted as weeks in the 360-day Julian calendar, come out to be 483 years to the day from the time that the decree went out to restore and build Jerusalem, which happened in 445 <clears throat> BC <clears throat> and was recorded in Nehemiah 2, 1 through 8, until the Messiah, the anointed one, the ruler, the prince of Israel, Came. That day happened 483 years later in 32 AD. That is what we commemorate today as Palm Sunday, the day of Jesus Christ's so called triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But it was not recognized for what it was back then. Looking over Jerusalem that fateful day, Jesus said, If you had known, even you especially, in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Luke 19, 42. Well, Daniel 9, 26 goes on to say, After sixty-two sevens, which followed the seven sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. Was that a coincidence? No, it was not. Especially as we look at other prophetic scriptures such as Zechariah 9.9, which also relate to this event. That says, Rejoice, O greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, 
lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. But later on, in that same prophetic book of Zechariah, it says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. It also says, they weighed out for me my wages, 30 pieces of silver, that pricely price they put on me. And it says, they will look upon me whom they pierced. So those, of course, relate to Jesus's betrayal, his arrest, and his crucifixion. Now we can also look at Psalm 118, 19 through 27, which says, Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them, and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, through which the righteous shall enter. I will praise you, for you have answered me, and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. It goes on, God is the Lord and he has given us light. All these were wonderful exaltations and they included those very words, Hosanna, that means God saves. Those very words that those people said on the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem. But you know what? Those words are followed with this. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Well, could that be pointing to the saving Lord's self-sacrifice? Yes, it does. So Jesus is entering Jerusalem on Palm Sunday was hardly triumphal in the way that would have been expected of a conquering earthly king. But he did enter and he did conquer the greatest of all enemies there in Jerusalem on a cross. He conquered sin and death. That day he knew what was ahead of him and ahead of his people afterward. As a matter of fact, he stopped and he wept looking over that city and he said, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Luke 19, 42-44 Jesus came lowly and riding on a donkey. He came as a servant king. He came to wash the feet of his disciples and then to endure crucifixion for us all. That was Jesus' method of conquering. Well, another astonishing thing 
is knowing that all these people who had spread out their garments and, and leafy branches on the road before Jesus and waved palms, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All those people would abandon him in the coming days, and some even crying out, crucify. Human nature is always the same. It always astonishes how quickly God's people have always failed and always turned from him, from the wilderness to the promised land, from the Garden of Eden to the Garden of Gethsemane. There is always way more failure than there is faithfulness, even in God's own people. Good intentions that get rallied when things are going well, as well as we had hoped, when we see God's power and blessing, those good intentions fade quickly the minute that, we, that things don't go as well as we had hoped or believed they should have. The minute we don't understand God's ways, we often balk and turn our backs on him. Yet God's love persists. He persists in his faithfulness and his mercy despite our failings. Looking at what came next, we understand Jesus' disciples. We understand what an emotional roller coaster that must have been for them. Uh, you know, it started even before this, way back when his disciples had realized that Jesus was a marked man, when they realized that the leadership in Jerusalem wanted him dead, and they were his followers. Back then, Jesus had withdrawn with his disciples for a while, but he would not miss this day that was appointed for him. He insisted on going to Jerusalem, and he set his face like a flint, determined to go back despite the threats, despite him knowing what was ahead of him. He knew he was going to be killed, but he also knew that he was going to rise again. And he had told his disciples that. But his disciples hadn't understood. They didn't want to. They ignored it probably because they couldn't handle it emotionally. Perhaps that can explain why they were acting so childless, childish, and foolishly in this very time, arguing over rank as Jesus was marching toward his death. They were still jockeying for position to be closest to Jesus, quite oblivious to what was really happening. And when the time came for them to be closest to Jesus, then they actually failed him. They slept as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, though he had called them to pray with him. Again, they couldn't handle it emotionally. It was all too much for them. And sometimes the life that Jesus calls us to 
The life he calls us to endure is much to us, much too much for us as well. What happens in those times? Do we ignore his words to us the same way his disciples did? Do we close our ears to the Holy Spirit's word to us in difficult times? How could Jesus do what we cannot do? How could he endure such suffering? Well, he could because unlike us, he understood his Father's will in everything. He knew the end from the beginning. Hebrews 12.2 says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And of course, now because he had endured, now he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. If you think of it, because of what Jesus did for us, because he, what he left in heaven because of us, his whole life had been one of suffering. And Holy Week was just the climax of his suffering. Jesus had known and trusted the Father perfectly, and that's how he got through where we falter. And in our suffering, Hebrews 12 tells us that we must look to him. It says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It's not an easy race we're in. It's not an easy life. But the writer of Hebrews goes on, for consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted the bloodshed striving against sin. You know, whenever we falter, it is a crisis of faith. We simply don't know and don't trust God enough. But God is still faithful to get us through even then. After Jesus rose from the dead, he explained everything to his disciples. He explained those scriptures like Daniel 9 and Zechariah um, 9 through 13 and Psalm 118, I'm sure. And he explained why it had to be that way, he said, to fulfill scripture. With that and with the work of the Holy Spirit, the disciples understood his and his father's will for them much better than they did before. And their faith grew then into being a self-giving, self-dying faith, just like Jesus's. The Holy Spirit revealed the meaning of scripture to them 
and also revealed God's will to them after Jesus ascended. And they understood from all that that there was nothing lasting for them in this world, nothing of value in this world until Jesus returns. The only thing that was worth something in this world was Jesus' dying for them on the cross and the forgiveness of sins that they received in that act. That was the good news for all who put their trust in Jesus, that and the world to come. And that is what they set out to spread from then on. Jesus sent them as the Father had sent him into a world of suffering to announce the good news of redemption by Jesus. This world is full of trials and suffering. Jesus told his disciples that, but he also told them that he had overcome the world. So be of good cheer. He said, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So we have to fix our eyes on Jesus and on what he has accomplished, even though we don't see it as the writer of Hebrews says, we don't see him as we look at this world on, on the throne, but he is on the throne and he's gonna return to rule. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that we can know this fact by faith. Lord, faith that you have given us, help us to stand on that faith, to stand firm, to constantly go back to that fact, Lord, when we are assailed by suffering in this world and, uh, and by not understanding the way that things are and, and why uh, you don't do what we feel you should do to alleviate suffering sometimes. But Lord, we know it's just a matter of time. Lord, because you said it, Lord, and you predicted and told us about the tribulation too. You didn't tell us that things were gonna be great afterwards. After you died, you told the disciples that they would be kicked out of the synagogues and, and killed and people would think they were doing good when they did that to them, Lord, but, but Lord, it's all going to end as you return. And we, we say to you now, even now, Lord, even so, come, Lord Jesus, we look to your return. Thank you for all you did for us. In Jesus' name, amen.